Welcome to the Pete on Software podcast, where we program with passion. This is the podcast that discusses technology, the business side of software, and the tech people that drive our industry. And now, here's your host, Pete Shearer. Hi, and welcome to episode 24 of the Pete on Software podcast. I'm recording this on Saturday, September 27th, 2014. Today, I have an awesome guest for you. After the iCloud photo leak earlier this month, I wanted to get someone on to talk about application security and how hard of a problem that really is. And since I recorded that interview, news of the Shellshock bug has come out, making today's interview even more timely. My guest for this episode is Wolfgang Gorlick, who supports information security initiatives for clients in the healthcare, education, financial services, and energy verticals. As Vice President of Consulting Services for ViaPoint, Wolfgang leads an information security team specializing in managed security services, regulatory compliance, and penetration testing. Wolfgang regularly advises and presents on the topics of managing security risks and securing systems throughout the development lifecycle. And now, the interview. Hi, Wolfgang. How's it going? Hey, fantastic, Pete. Yourself? Uh, it's going great. Thanks for being. Thanks a lot for being on the podcast. Yeah, pleasure to be here. All right, so how did you get started in software security? Like, what interested you in it, and what's kept you in the field? So my, my background is actually in software development and IT ops. And uh, at the time, you know, this was like classic, like hackers movie, sneakers movie, 1990s. Everyone was talking about security and breaking into things and whatnot. And I was reading the book, you know, like how to steal this network and what. And they're like, oh, you got to get root. You got to get sysadmin. You got to get this. You got to get that. And I was working at a local hospital and they approached me and uh, they said, hey, would you like a job at, on, our, uh, on our team doing IT? I'm like, yeah, absolutely, I would. I only have one question. And she's like, okay, well, what is that? I'm like, can I have sysadmin? She goes, uh, sure. And she didn't know what I meant. And I didn't know what I meant, but I knew that uh, you know, all these books of breaking into networks all boiled down to me just asking, Yeah, which uh, thrilled me. So I, I, I got into the IT world and didn't have to break in, didn't have to break any rules, just had to ask, which I liked. And started building systems, and, and at that hospital, we took them to off paper and, and typewriters and everything, and built the software and the infrastructure to do it. And I, I felt really good about that. I'm like, awesome, you know, I can I can build these systems, and it's great. And I was doing pretty good until 1997. Do you remember the monkey bee virus by any chance? Yeah, yeah, that that was just a pesky little bugger, and it fired off in April Fools. And so at that time, I was running my own company. Some time had passed from the hospital. And we had this special boot disk we we're using, and we we're booting people's computers up and running diagnostics. And lo and behold, I'd infected 70% of my clients with Monkey Bee. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I dusted off the books, <laughs> and uh, my ego went down a couple notches that day. And I was like, wait a minute, let's, let's revisit this whole breaking into systems and look at uh, what's going on with the bad guys and how they're coming at us. And I became much more security conscious uh, at that point. And from then on, whether I was leading developer teams or IT teams, I always had a look at, okay, this is great. We're excited. We're, we're making progress. You know, the administration loves us. But what's going to happen? What's going to be our monkey bee, right? What is going to be the, the thing that we're not seeing until it's too late and it whacks us? Yeah. All right. That's awesome. Um, so you're talking about stuff right here now. You're talking about 1997 and the monkey bee virus. And we've obviously come a long way from there. How in the world do you stay current with this? How do you stay up to date and make sure that you know what the latest security problem is, what the latest exploits are? How do you, you know, there are multiple operating systems. People are still running XP, some are running Vista, 
Some are running Mac OS, some are running Windows 7. Like you've got all these OSs, you've got lots of server OSs, you've got lots of threats. How do you stay current on what's out there? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's it's a huge task, right? It's like uh, Sisyphus trying to roll the rock up the mountain every day. Here's where I'd love to give your audience this this great insight into how to read twice as fast and, and you know learn by osmosis. But the, the reality is I don't. I, I gave up. I did an analysis a few years back, crunched all the news for uh, several months, looked at how fast I was reading, looked at how much time I was having, and I came to the conclusion that one day's worth of new news equaled about five to six days at 10 hours a day of me reading. So there's just no way, I think, these days to keep up. Yeah. Instead, what I've shifted to doing, and I think this makes a lot of sense, is looking at key behaviors. So if you, for example, let me let me give you uh, one of the environments we work in has literally 60,000 different systems. And I think of those 60,000, there's well over a thousand different platforms. So you mentioned different version of Windows, that would include different versions of Cisco, different version of firewalls, infrastructure, Linux, Unix, you name it, right? A thousand different types of systems. And then tens of thousands of um, different applications, both off the shelf and homebrew. There is no way to know every single possible threat in that. Yeah. Uh, it, you just, it, it's just not going to happen. Instead, what I look at is, is key behaviors. So life cycle behaviors like the secure development life cycle, like vulnerability management, those types of behaviors that when implemented by a security team, it covers multitudes of different threats because you can address those threats by doing threat modeling, by tightening up the environment, by putting in place controls. You know, the type of behaviors that become good IT, good software development practice, and in turn build very rugged systems that are not immune, but are resilient in the face of attacks, no matter what the new threats are. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I definitely understand what you're saying about, you said not only the systems, but the permutations of the system. You know, just because you have one operating system and then you could have X number of firewalls that have X number of, you know, routers with with hardware, with firmware threats or whatever, you can't know. So uh, I think it's a good approach. So t- talk to me a little bit about what is an average day in the life of like a security expert, pen tester, white hat hacker, yeah, you know, whoever, like the good guys. You know, when you work at a company like yours, what does that look like? I know when I watch movies, you know, it's like war games or you mentioned sneakers or swordfish. It's probably not that. So what is it really like? There's like this mystique that, you know, there's guys in the back rooms with command line terminals just banging away, hacking the IRS or whatever. What is that really like for you guys? Oh, it's totally like swordfish. Uh, <laughs> I have my team who looks like Hugh Jackman. No, it's it's funny you mentioned swordfish. We actually, all our projects have code names and I do have a project called swordfish and everyone was arguing over who got to be Hugh Jackman. It was great. <laughs> an, an average day on, so in my team, we focus on three different things, security monitoring, uh, vulnerability management, and assessment. So I'm going to stick with the assessments, which would be your pen testers, your mobile app, you know, assessors and what have you. Typical work week, you know, 40 to 60 hours. Of that, there's a lot of talking with the clients, educating them on what we do, uh, helping answer any questions, pre-sales work, that type of stuff. But also on on training, which we believe very heavily on, because if you can train people in the right practices, it saves so much by the time the code's been produced, and you know now we're trying to retrofit security controls. So that's probably about twenty five percent of it. Seventy five percent of it is very much 
okay, this client's biggest fear is X. We're going to do X. And my, uh, my guys get in. They've, yeah, absolutely. They're consoles, tools. We got password crackers. We got appliances. We'll ship to clients. And we will attempt to execute specific scenarios um, that the client has expressed they're very concerned about. So, you know, uh, one, one recent one, which was awesome, was they're like, we're really concerned about our intellectual privacy and uh, we do a lot of the right things on the software development side, but we don't necessarily know, you know, is, is our practices and procedures tight and whatnot. And so we immediately went for their source control, mm-hmm. which happened to be subversion. Okay, cool. But it happened to be completely anonymous, open subversion. So at some point in time, they decided, you know, for the, for the developers, we had rotating developers and whatnot, you know, adding and removing was a pain. So within literally an hour from the outside of the company into the inside of the company, our guys were able to get to that source control, post updates, pull down all the intellectual property. It was pretty fun. It was a pretty good example. That is depressing. <laughs> so we didn't even think about, you know, it's like who would think, oh, source control. Someone has probably thought. What does this matter? Who's going to want this or who's going to even check? And then you just said you've got there. A lot of people have improperly, but they have passwords and source control, other things. And gosh, I know who knows how much stuff you can yeah, get. Exactly. Uh, scary. It, it is scary. But I think that too is that goes back to key behaviors and key objectives, right? To, to me, in part, I like a good story. You mentioned war games and swordfish. Uh, yeah. And we all love a good story. But and also in part, it's what's the relevance? What does it really matter? Mm-hmm. And I would much rather have a client come to us and say, I am most concerned about this particular system or this new application we're just about to launch. Um, someone using that and stealing credentials or stealing, stealing credit card data, then going, oh, just pen test and tack whatever you want and tell me what you see. Yeah. You know, so we, uh, we did a banking app, a mobile banking app, where we had uh, the Android version and, and the iOS version. And, and that was exactly it, right? How could someone attack these mobile devices to execute payments and do fund transfers for the end users. So can you do that? That's what I'm really scared about. Okay, fine. Ship us the equipment. We'll we'll build a story around it. We'll build a test environment. We'll see if we can do it. What kind of, so, you know, you talk about these people and what they're doing. What's the kind of mindset that would make someone successful in being like a security guy, gal, whatever. So you've got these people that are Maybe curious. Maybe they're uh, maybe they're curious about how things work. I know that's kind of that hacker mentality, but it, you know, it's, it seems like there might be more than that as well. Is there? Do you, have you found in, in your time at your company that a certain kind of personality temperament that leads someone to believe uh, or leads someone to be good at this kind of thing? Oh, definitely. So you you've got to be technical. Obviously, you got to understand multiple different systems and how they go together. A lot of what makes for a good attacker in my mind is understanding not how this application was written or how this particular server works or what flaws this code may have. Again, that's what we were talking about earlier with how do you keep up with all the potential different vulnerabilities. But going one level up, how do people use IT? How do people use technology? How do people build apps? Why are people building apps? And hacking that mental process rather than trying to enumerate all the different vulnerabilities. Someone who can get into the mind of the developer, get into the mind of the IT operator, get into the mind of the defender, those type of people have the right traits to find and exploit things that no one else is going to see. And then to report it, of course, in a way that actually means something to the organization. That's good. You, you mentioned threat modeling earlier, something you guys do. 
And and you hear that a lot. And so, you know, people kind of know what that is. They know it's associated with with security experts. But what is that? So what's the output of that? If, if you do a threat modeling against against my company, against my application, am I going to get a report? Is that like, is it something actionable that's at like the C level? Or is it something developers can can act on directly? So what does that look like? And who's it for? So there are there are different levels of threat modeling. No, it's generally not C-level visible. This is for the people who are uh, hands-on keyboard. In terms of application threat modeling, what you're basically doing is, if you think about a use case, a use case says, this is what the person is trying to accomplish, right? And this is the functionality we're going to build to enable them. And this is how we're going to test it, more or less. Mm -hmm. A good threat model says, this is the behavior that a attacker will attempt, and this is the desire that the bad guy has. These are the controls that we're going to build within our software to prevent that bad guy. So it's pretty much like the opposite of a use case, to prevent that bad guy from doing that criminal behavior. And here are some tests that uh, the QA department or that you know an ethical hacker could perform to make sure that these controls are sufficient against this given threat. So okay. it's it's very powerful mm-hmm. because much like we can't read everything to know all the vulnerabilities, if we were to spend an unlimited, you know, spend the resources to secure our applications against every possible threat, that's no more ludicrous than saying we're going to spend all the resources to make our application do whatever anyone would want it to do. Mm-hmm. Right? Organizations are very effective when they make their applications very user-centric. Likewise, defensible applications are very effective when the developers focusing on building things along where the attackers are going. So what can the average developer do in the first place to write more secure code on a day-to-day basis? Is there, do you have some tips or tricks, that uh, things they should keep in mind? And what kind of tools maybe they could have avail- available that can be executed at that developer or QA level in order to maybe see some things early? Because it's obviously just like bugs, it's more cost effective to fix it early in development than to fix it after it's in production or, you know, God forbid, after you've had an yeah, attack. Yeah, most definitely. The, uh, the main things are knowing your language very well, mm-hmm. looking at the security features in your language. You know, obviously the OWASP community has done a great job to, to put a lot of resources out there across multitudes of different languages. Also, many of the language communities have a security uh, niche within them. So there's a lot of information, if the developer looks for it, on how to write the code in a secure way. Also getting that mindset of, okay, for every line of code I write, I've introduced a vulnerability. So thinking, okay, this is what that use case looks like if it's written and the user's doing it. But what does that mean to an attacker or criminal? You know, what have I just allowed them to do? So thinking of the obverse, not only how will things be used, but how will they be abused? So those are some good tips. Uh, outreach is always good. So attending security conferences or, or OWASP meetings. Uh, in terms of tools, there are some pretty good static code analysis tools out there. Uh, in the Ruby world, I'm thinking of like Brakeman. In the Microsoft world, I'm thinking of like FX Cop and Style Cop's new security guides. So looking for static code and analyzers that you can use during compile time just to do quick checks, you know, just a bug's a bug, whether it's security or not, just to check for those types of very common security bugs that we might be making. Yeah, that makes sense because, you know, one of the most, the bugs I know get used a lot is, you know, when they do overflow bugs where things overflow and, you know, then you allow someone to execute code that shouldn't be executed. 
And those are the kind of things that if you had analysis that, that maybe saw that you weren't checking for bounds, uh, weren't checking your bounds checking or checking for overflows, you know, you can prevent that vulnerability. So uh, I guess there are a lot of things uh, just at the language level, core language level, obviously, uh, that uh, can cause you problems. You mentioned OWASP, which is the Open Web Application Security Project. What is that exactly? And, and how would someone, like, what do they have for us? What, how can we get involved? Or, or what's, uh, you know, how are they used in our day-to-day life that, or how are they useful in our day-to-day life, I should say? Yeah, so OWASP has a couple of different things. There are um, annual conferences that teach security practices and share lessons of secure development. There are typically, depending on your area or region, there are monthly or quarterly meetups. So I'm actually one of the co-founders of the local OWASP chapter, and we meet quarterly. Uh, And that's a great way to share information and and get things uh, going and discuss, hey, I'm writing this code. How might this be attacked? You know, getting the the pen testers over with the developers so they can discuss things and and learn from each other. And then there's also a website that has a, a variety of resources, tools, documentation, guidance, best practices. And then OWASP publishes a top 10 list of how they see applications being attacked. So you can look at the top 10 ways your app is being broken and learn from that and prepare uh, defenses accordingly. Great. I've heard you talk before about uh, securing the internet of things Mm -hmm. on another podcast and I saw a video presentation. What are some of the challenges that are gonna exist in that space? And we might end up seeing in the news in the next five to 10 years as people get more Nest thermostats and you know, I don't know, internet-enabled light bulbs and refrigerators, you know, what are some of the problems that are going to show, are going to show up? Oh, there's going to be lots of problems. <laughs> so many problems. So w- would you agree on a developer scale that bugs are proportional to the size of the company and the quickness you're writing your code? So put, put differently, if you've got a small team and you're writing code very quickly, you're going to have more bugs and if you've got a, a, a larger team with a defined QA process and you've got more lead time. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, absolutely. And, and would you also agree that the longer a code base is out there, obviously, the more those bugs are found and worked out. So like a five-year-old piece of software is going to have a, a significantly less defect density than a three-month project that two guys written in the garage. Yeah, yeah. Mature and stable code bases usually have the bugs kind of ironed out. The easy ones anyway, especially, certainly. Exactly, exactly. And the larger companies obviously begin to build processes for educating their developers and writing clean code. So what scares me about the Internet of Things is that it is, and excites me too, it's, it's the new frontier. It's the new Wild West. This is where you've got many, many small companies. I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it was over 90% of the Internet of Things companies today are less than 20 people and are less than 5 million in revenue. And what that means is they don't have a lot of money for uh, expenditures on secure code. They don't have a lot of money for assessments. They don't have a lot of money for training. These are your startups who are putting things together very quickly and hoping to be the next Nest, right? Mm -hmm. Hoping to be the next um, big breakthrough company. So you're going to see a lot of systems come out with a great deal of vulnerabilities, and then we're going to be trusting these systems and bringing them into our homes. Then partner on top of that, the fact that these systems are going to be built on top of web apps, on top of shared infrastructure, uh, on top of cloud services, PayPal, you know, payment processing, all these other things. And what that means is not only do we have the risk of small companies doing what small companies do, we also have uh, the risk of 
there being a fundamental flaw in any one of these big companies and now all our Internet of Things products are at risk, right? So a fundamental flaw in the authentication to Facebook affects every single Internet of Things device that's relying on Facebook authentication. Yeah. So it's going to be it's going to be a rocky, rocky few years, I think. All right. So maybe I'll, I'll just wait five years before I even get started. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I also know you gave a talk at Star Trek about uh, doing the software development lifestyle inside hostile environments. Basically what happens when end users have the motive, opportunity, and skill set to attack our software. I saw that title. I ended up, I couldn't make it to your talk. I was giving one just right before that, and then I got held over. But it sounded interesting to me, and I have you on here, and this podcast is really all about me anyway. So <laughs> can you talk a little bit about some of the lessons you discovered there and you talked about at the talk? Like, what was kind of that situation, and you know, where are you building software that the end users are the, uh, are the hostile ones? So that that was it's one of my favorite talks I've given this year. The the backstory is we created a capture the flag exercise for hackers, mm-hmm. and we spent about twenty four weeks writing this code. And what I do is I walk through because I, I used to manage a developer team prior to my current position, and so at the time, you know, I structured it as a formal development with you know the right phases and SDL. We did the threat modeling. And we had we had a lot of security interested people. So we had uh, myself and my co-founder on OWASP Detroit were the leads, and we had you know people who were attacking the code to make sure it was secure and everything. So we go through 24 weeks of, of building this stuff out, and we launch, and within 24 hours we were breached. Wow! So in 24 hours we invite all these hackers on to play and sure enough a couple people found ways to cheat they started like you know getting 9000 points for this and screwing with the scoreboards and everything else and there's a lesson there too i think uh maybe don't poke the bear in this case you guys did it for fun but maybe if you have an application maybe you shouldn't call out hackers yeah yeah don't don't poke the bear absolutely and the other thing, what, what I like about this is, I mentioned at the top, I, I come out of a developer space. I come out of IT operations. That's, that's was my college training and my first couple of jobs. And one of the things that always frustrates me is the, the, the line of thinking in the security community that, oh, the developers just don't know what they're doing. And if we did it, it would be, be just fine. Yeah. So I love to come to a developer conference and go, look, a whole bunch of us hackers got together and we wrote code and guess what? We got breached too. It's not just you guys. It's not just, you know, a knowledge issue. It is a fundamental issue of software that when you build things, the ability to think through all the permutations is very difficult. And the ability to test all the permutations is very difficult. This is not a, a trivial matter. If it was trivial, we would have solved software security five, ten years ago. So the main thing that I, I learned from that was um the SDL process is a fantastic way to cover a lot of things. It's a very good process. The areas where we fell down were things like very clear requirements and going back as those requirements changed and revisiting the security controls and revisiting the threat models. It was actually some of the functionality we added at the end, you know, that gold plating that got us into the trouble. That's interesting. Yeah. So you got you got stuff on there that was maybe just a little less planned or a little less, uh, got, got a chance to get a little less polished uh, through the process. And, and that's where they came in. Mm-hmm, exactly. Uh, so tell me a little bit about if I, so if I am a developer, you said you started there and I was interested in getting into the kind of the world of info security. How, what do you have to do to kind of pursue that task? Is it just going to some of those meetings and looking for opportunities? Like how can I best position myself so that I could, you know, make that was kind of a career shift if that's what I wanted to do. Sure, sure. Um, one, 
it's a project like any other. Uh, are you familiar with Bill Semph? Oh, yeah, absolutely. He is my poster child for this. The guy is brilliant. I talked to him three, four, five years ago. I don't know, a while back. And he's like, I want to get into software security. I'm like, yeah. He goes, yeah, so this year I'm going to do this. And then the following quarter, I'm going to do that. I'm going to learn this. I'm going to learn that. I'm going to go to this conference. I'm going to go to that conference. I'm going to meet these people. And fast forward several years, and now he's, he's basically the application security guy, right? So there, there are clear steps you can take. You've got to plan it out. Uh, a lot of it's knowledge. A lot of it is outreach. A lot of it is networking. Common things that you would do to grow into any area. It's no different than going from C Sharp to Ruby or from being a mobile developer to a cloud developer, look at what they have and then plot out how you're going to get there. But two, the other thing is, I think fundamentally, and I've, I've seen a couple really good talks at the Converge conference this summer on this concept, where developers went and they became within their team effectively the security evangelist. So they took point on learning the security features of their environment. They took point on learning how the SDL would plug into their regular development lifecycle. They took point on communicating with the security team and, and being the communication conduit. And then within their development team, they took point when they're doing pair programming and whatnot to say, yeah, that's fantastic. Have you considered this? Or, oh, that's really good how you did that. I want to make sure I do the same thing because that's a great way to prevent this type of attack. It doesn't have to be a full-on transition. Wherever developers are today, they have the ability to contribute to making cleaner code, more resilient code, more rugged code. All right. Great. I think that's great advice. I think we're, we're about wrapped up here. We're about on time. Is there anything uh, that we can promote for you to talk about some stuff you're into, Twitter, blog, your company services, any of those things? Sure. Absolutely. Uh, on the community level, I already mentioned OWASP. Mm -hmm. So can't stress enough to go out and, and find your local OWASP chapter. If you're in the Michigan area, um, OWASP Detroit is is a really good group. We meet quarterly. The security community in general, the, the city security groups are very welcoming developers. Check out your local one. Again, if you're in Michigan, the security group is MISEC, M-I-S-E-C for Southeast Michigan in the Detroit area. And we've got a, a good contingent of developers who meet along with the rest of IT ops and security and ethical hackers and whatnot on a monthly basis. Uh, on the conference scene, I mentioned Converge. Converge meets every summer in Detroit. And Converge, what we look to do there is to bring developers in with IT ops folks and hackers and have a, a convergence of the different skill sets that it takes to build and maintain really good systems. So that's every June and July in Detroit. And then uh, my name is Wolfgang Gorlick. So I'm at JW Gorlick and jwgorlick.com. So JW Gorlick on Twitter. And then my blog is JW Gorlick. And I work for a company called Vialpoint. And Vialpoint, we do um, security monitoring, we do vulnerability management, we do application assessments and pen testing. So we break things, we fix things, and we have a lot of fun. Great, great team, and I'm fortunate to work with them. Do you guys work nationwide? So, I mean, it's remotely working, and so anyone in the country can call you? Or how's the, how far does the country or the company reach? We definitely work nationwide. We're strongest in Michigan. I like to, to win in my backyard first. But uh, yeah, we have, we have clients all over the country. Okay, and excellent. Canada too. All right, that's great. Uh, Wolfgang, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been an awesome interview. I appreciate it a million percent. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. It's been fun. As I said there, a big thank you again to Wolfgang Gorlick for being on my podcast. I hope you guys got as much out of it as I did. 
And now it's time for my pick of the week. My pick of the week this week is going to be Jason Placeholder over at jasonplaceholder.tipicode.com. The Jason Placeholder is a free-to-use JSON API that you can use to mess around with networking code. I most recently used it in my Intro to AF Networking version 2 Dimecast, and it was a lifesaver. I needed an easy-to-understand API that we could use, and this fit the bill entirely. You can get a placeholder data on users, posts, comments, albums, photos, and to-dos. The photos even come with live URLs that can return placeholder images. If you're trying to learn that latest JavaScript library, or just trying to learn a new language or framework like Node or Ruby on Rails or something that you haven't done before, and you need something to use to create a fake site around as you learn, JSON Placeholder is a great fit. You can even run it locally if you need to. Instructions are right on that site. That's it for this week. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me on Twitter at PeteOnSoftware or at my blog, PeteOnSoftware.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. (laughs) 